I'm Leonora Quara, your host for the Public Health Consultant Podcast, where I bring awareness to public health issues and initiatives in the African American community. Let's get started. Hi, welcome back for another episode. Today, I will be continuing the conversation around maternal morbidity and mortality. There is so much information on this topic, so I couldn't possibly fit everything into one episode. So I want to dive a little deeper into strategies to reduce this disparity. Of course, I cannot highlight everything. There's still so much more information out there. So think of this as a starting point for you or for us to get out there and do something about it. As I said, I'll be using Healthy People 2020 as a guide for topic ideas. And Healthy People 2020 and 2030, Healthy People in general, provide health goals that they hope that um, we will reach by a certain year. So by 2020, the Healthy People goal is to reduce the number of maternal deaths from 12.7 deaths per 100,000 live births. This was the rate in 2007 to 11.4 in 2020. So this is an overall 10% improvement. So like I said, 12.7 to 11.4 was the goal. Unfortunately, as I stated in the first episode, the rate has increased. Um, Per the Pregnancy Mortality Surveillance System's last update in 2014, the maternal mortality rate was actually 18 per 100,000 live births. So yes, something needs to be done. So this podcast today will be sort of like a mini literature review where I highlight four publications and just discuss some of the strategies that they've mentioned. There are so many factors that need to be considered when looking at rates of death among Black mothers. An article by Elizabeth Howell, MD, it's called Reducing Disparities in Severe Maternal Morbidity and Mortality. It was published in 2018 in the Clinical Obstetrics and Gynecology Journal, and it discussed the underlying factors of this health disparity. She described a conceptual model that shows how certain factors affect this rate. Her model includes patient factors, which includes things like age, education level, marital status, insurance, literacy level, knowledge, beliefs, and health behaviors, um, social support. She also describes community factors such as social networks, um, neighborhood crime, poverty, housing. She describes provider factors like knowledge, experience, implicit bias, which Implicit bias is, um, they're like attitudes or stereotypes that unconsciously influence our decision. So we aren't intentionally being biased, but this is just something within us and causes us to react a certain way um, in certain situations. She also discussed system factors, which included access to high quality care, transportation, structural racism, and policy. Um, She mentioned in provider factors, cultural competence, um, 
as being something that would need to be addressed in order to reduce this disparity. Um, so that's one thing I had a concern about in the model. Overall, this is an amazing model, but the cultural competency piece is something that I would like to address further um, in a later podcast, and I'll get into it a little bit more at the end of this podcast. So she also mentioned another model called Pregnancy Medical Home, and this has been implemented by the North Carolina Division of Health. So This program provides case management for high-risk pregnant Medicaid patients, and because of implementing the program, North Carolina has seen a decline in their Black maternal mortality rates. Wow, this is something that actually works. So the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services caught wind of this amazing, successful program and is now currently testing this model out at select sites around the country. Um, Providers also benefit from this if they participate. They receive financial incentives from Medicaid, clinical guidance materials and resources, and opportunities to network with other providers. So as you can see, this is a win-win situation, which is key (laughs) in order to successfully implement a program. Everything I'm mentioning here, I urge you to do research yourself and look into these further and look into other things that may help reduce this disparity. There's a book called Reproductive, Maternal, Newborn, and Child Health, Disease Control Priorities. It's the third edition, volume two, and it was published in 2016, and it discussed the role and the importance of having community health workers. Um... When you think about investing finances into the healthcare system, a lot of times public health professionals are removed from that situation because our goal is to prevent um, diseases and things like that. And so um, this text described the importance of community health workers in the treatment plan. And they discussed them being trained to focus on maternal, newborn, and child health. And... Basically, the community health workers that were described in this text would train and work alongside healthcare professionals, and they would provide health education and promotion, referrals, they would manage illness. Um, the text also mentioned the importance of health campaigns, school based health promotion, and home based care, which would include home visits. Home visits would reduce the need to travel to seek care and also increase the chance of detecting adverse outcomes early. So the number one thing we can do um, and the easiest thing we can do is educate. Some moms in the African-American community, of course, and others as well, but um, I'm speaking towards and about the African-American communities because I am African-American. But a lot of times we aren't aware of the medical information that we need to know to save our lives. And of course, as patients in general, when we're in labor or just have given birth, we rely a lot on the medical providers to deliver adequate care because our focus is on reducing the pain and making sure we get through this. But as a patient in general, we should make sure we are aware of our risks for certain health outcomes and also the ways to reduce those risks. There's an article called National Initiatives to Improve Systems for Postpartum Care. It's published in 2016 by Lisa Kleppel, 
and colleagues in the Maternal and Child Health Journal. And it also described initiatives focused on reducing this disparity. They described a program launched by the Association of Women's Health Obstetric and Neonatal Nurses called the Empowering Women to Obtain Needed Care Project. The goal of this project is to educate women on recognizing potential life-threatening post-birth warning signs and when to seek medical, emergency medical care, and how to. So they use an acronym to help you remember these things. And um, of course, an acronym is always great until you have too many acronyms to remember. Um, But this acronym is called POST-BIRTH, so post-birth. It's used to help women decide which symptoms require immediate medical attention. So the symptoms that spell POST, P-O-S-T, are symptoms of the leading causes of death and are considered critical and require immediate medical attention. P means pain in chest. O means obstructed breathing or shortness of breath. S stands for seizures. T stands for thoughts of hurting yourself or your infant. The symptoms that spell birth, B-I-R-T-H, are urgent, and women are advised to call their provider for next steps. And if their provider doesn't answer, then they are advised to go to the hospital. B stands for bleeding. I stands for incision that is not healing. R stands for red or swollen leg that is painful or warm to the touch. T stands for temperature of 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. And H stands for headache that does not get better even after medication or a bad headache that includes vision changes. This association is making efforts to standardize the information given to moms for postpartum care. So it would be great if something like this could be standardized nationally, of course with tailored information, for certain groups with higher risks of certain symptoms, like African-American women. There's another article, and this is the last article I'll be talking about. It's called Healthcare Strategies for Reducing Pregnancy-Related Morbidity and Mortality in the Postpartum Period. It was written by Deborah Bingham, Dr. PH, and colleagues, and published in the Journal of Perinatal and Neonatal Nursing in 2018. They describe the need to improve and standardize postpartum discharge education. So this is exactly what we were just talking about. New mothers go home and are now thrust back into real daily life, which is real. (laughs) And it's really hard, as I said, to think about yourself or monitor your health like you should because you're focused on your new little blessing. I have firsthand knowledge of that times three. You bring your baby home and you are focused on every cry Um, every movement, their breathing, you know, there's so many things that take your attention and distract you that you don't even recognize that you are having maybe a health issue that requires medical care. To educate the patients, though, it means that staff, clinical and public health, will also have to be educated properly to deliver this information. So there's this thing called academic detailing where you are training providers to deliver the care. This will need to become priority. Um, Bingham and colleagues, the author of this article, also discussed the importance of enhancing the timing of postpartum care services and emphasize the need for ongoing follow-up and not just one postpartum visit. 
This could be handled by public health nurses who are able to evaluate any medical or social concerns. Of course, this sounds nice, <laughs> but when you look at the whole picture, you still have to think about insurance coverage for this because this has to be paid for. And it's unfortunate because the people who need it the most, the people who are at higher risks for postpartum complications like the uninsured and underinsured, won't be able to take advantage of additional visits. Um, the authors also described improving the quality of postpartum care. And so at each visit to educate the patients on things like warning signs, nutrition, depression, psychological well-being, among other things. They also stress the importance of efforts um, that focus on social and mental health support and highlighted another program called the Motherhood Center of New York. It offers classes, education, counseling, consultations, and a day clinic to support and treat postnatal mood and anxiety disorders. So I thought that was amazing. And what if every major city could provide something like this, particularly in areas where the rates are highest? So now that you know this, what can we do as public health professionals? Remember, this isn't an exhaustive list. I would be on here much longer than that. <laughs> These are just starting points, as I said before. If you have programs in mind that you've been thinking about, um, but need help actually planning it out or just want to talk about it, reach out to me. Let's chat. I have several years of program design experience and would love the opportunity to join in on your efforts. My website is www.thepublichealthconsultant.com and just contact me and let's talk by email and phone, whatever you feel comfortable with. Um, but I would love to join in on the discussion. Most maternal deaths are preventable. This is what I have read over and over again in my research. Most maternal deaths are preventable. Did that statement trigger anything within you? We can do this. We can resolve this problem. We cannot lose the motivation, though. An integrated approach is necessary. So we need key players from all disciplines to come to the table and make this a priority. Maybe you can be the one who starts the conversation in your community. As public health professionals, we need to become empowered to fix this. We need to then empower our community. Education, health promotion activities are key to equipping our community with the information needed to make informed decisions and ask focused questions. We can organize a local community group and begin to brainstorm how best to address this issue locally. I know what you're thinking, because I'm thinking it too. <laughs> And I, as I was reading more and more, I was thinking it even more, this won't be easy. And you're right, but we have to be the one to lead this effort. Because if we don't, who will? We have to motivate ourselves and make the decision to take that first step. The Bible says nothing is impossible with God. It also says that you have been, um, the pain you have been feeling cannot compare to the joy that is coming. You will invest blood, sweat, and tears into this, but to see the change in the lives of your community will make a lasting impact on generations to come. I don't know about you, but that sounds like joy to me. 
Do any of you work as public health professionals in the child and maternal health field? If so, I like to hear um, some of the things you're doing to decrease the rate. Send me an email describing your work. On the next episodes, the next couple episodes, I'll be talking about an approach that has become very popular over the years. There were so many presentations at the American Public Health Association conference this year in San Diego about it. It's called Community-Based Participatory Research, or CBPR, and I feel like it may be the answer to a lot of our public health issues in the Black community. I'd I mentioned earlier about cultural competency and how I was sort of concerned um, about that approach. Um, So I'd also like to discuss cultural humility. Um, I'll say it again, cultural humility, which takes on a different approach than cultural competency. I really don't feel like anyone can become competent, so to speak, in another's culture. When I think of competency, I think... I study something and then I take a quiz and if I get, you know, 75% or higher or 90% or higher, I'm considered competent. And I don't feel like you can do that with culture. It doesn't work that way. I feel like the best way to learn about another culture is to acknowledge that the people within that culture are the experts and you are learning from them on a continuous basis. But I'll leave it at that. So if you'd like to be a guest on the show to discuss your work in the public health field, you please feel free to send me an email and we can set something up. Until next week, take care. Thank you for joining me for another episode. Please contact me with any questions or topic ideas at www.thepublichealthconsultant.com. Until next time, continue being a blessing.